Hey everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, and I have a very special treat for you guys. I know I say that a lot because I do try to pull in lots of different people from all over the place, but I'm telling you, this is a, a nurse that I know all of you are very curious about. And the, really, this type of nursing, when these people come onto the floor, when you see them in their uniforms, they're they're not just rock stars, they're celebrities. I feel like they're the people that are like, oh my gosh. I have a flight nurse on with me today. Stephanie, I am so proud and honored to have you today. Welcome to Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Hi, Tina. Thank you for having me. And hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. Well, I know that everybody is going to be so excited. We have a, a bad nurse story to talk about. We have, of course, a good nurse story to talk about. And intertwined in all of that conversation, we will be talking about flight nursing and the history of flight nursing and what all is involved in that. And Stephanie has extensive education and training in so many different types of nursing. This is going to be a fascinating episode. I'm so excited to be able to present this to you guys. And I'm real, she's going to be doing most of the talking here because she is the expert in so many different things. So I feel like this is going to be a real treat. And I appreciate it. I really, really appreciate you taking the time to do this. So I guess we can get started with our, our bad nurse story. This uh, the story is very disturbing when you think about. I mean, it's not necessarily. It's something that happens, I'm sure, all over the all over the world. But when you think about how it happened, you know, in the whole situation, it's disturbing to me. You know, to think about. So this is the story of Nurse Brian Wester and Brian from Alabama. He um, was a um, a registered nurse and a paramedic. Which Stephanie is that common? Like, does, are they? Is there? Are, are you? Are there paramedics that are just um, sort of flight nurses, but with a paramedic, or do are, do they start out one way? And how does that work? Okay, so there's a lot of ways to uh, skin this cat. And, and <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, please do not skin cats. Um, so it really kind of just depends, uh, and that's really kind of state dependent. So in my state, Pennsylvania, uh, well, Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Um, so. There's a lot of people that have gone from paramedicine into nursing or are nurses that have like um, an EMT background and maybe have challenged the paramedic test at the national registry level. So in some states, they may be nurses that fly with paramedics. I mean, it really just depends. There's no right or wrong way, but a lot of services will fly nurse and paramedic combos. But you do see a lot of paramedics that will be working on a 911 truck and may go on to get their nurse later on. You know, it, unfortunately, we live in a country where paramedics are underpaid, very much underpaid, and they're abused. The system just is tragically unfair to paramedicine. So they try to provide better lives for their families, better work hours. The nursing lobby has a very, very loud voice and, and strong professional organizations to advocate for them. So, you know, they try to get get their nursing degrees and go and just try to have, you know, better providing for their, for their families and for themselves. So you will see sometimes that paramedics will go and, and get their nursing degrees. But when you look at flight medicine, um, a lot of times, you know, you will see these these paramedic nurse combos. Now, me personally, the way I did it is I was an EMT since I was a teenager. And then I challenged what we in have Pennsylvania, what's called the PHRN or pre-hospital registered nurse. So the way our hierarchy goes is you have your EMT, you have your but we have an advanced EMT, uh, which can do a couple more skills between a 
EMT and a paramedic. You have your paramedic, which is, as people know, uh, the ones that provide a higher level of care, can give meds, start IVs, intubate. And then you have me. I'm the PHRN. Hi, everybody. Uh, who can do a few more things. We can do blood, take orders, or like we can give blood. Um, we can take orders from docs over the phone. Uh, a few more meds that we can give. And then we also in Pennsylvania have pre-hospital physician extenders. They're like your PAs and nurse practitioners who, you know, have some pre-hospital experience and you have your physicians who can work pre-hospital. Um, but this isn't standard throughout the entire country. Different states have different things. So it just kind of depends. Yeah, I feel like the the whole paramedicine that the that whole world is just so different than anything any of the rest of us know about. And and you know, and like I said, state by state, we're we're not like as far as EMS, we're not like nursing. Where nursing is sort of like you know, we have the NCLEX. You know, EMS has the National Registry. But even still, state to state, you know, some some people will have their state license, but then they'll have their National Registry. National Registry allows them to work anywhere in the country because it's a standardized you know test. So like our NCLEX, they have National Registry, but then they may have state exams that register them within the state. It's all very confusing, and trust me, the poor paramedic. <laughs> are probably not too happy about it themselves. So, um, yeah, it's it's all kind of silly with how some of the EMS stuff goes. And, and you know, unfortunately, they have, it, it's kind of unfair how the system's schemed against them. Yeah, it sounds like it. They do have a lot of responsibility on their shoulders. Mm-hmm. And I think a, a lot of people don't really, if you just stop and think about what they are responsible for. Oh, absolutely. You would think we would want to pay them more money. But then again, nurses are kind of the same way. And yet... Here we are, you know. Mm-hmm. So, and again, depends on what state you're in. But I live in probably one of the worst states in the country for nur- for paying nurses. <laughs> so, there's that. Yeah. So Brian Wester, he uh, was a licensed nurse, also paramedic. He worked for an air ambulance service. He worked in Demopolis, Alabama, wherever that is. So on August the 27th in 2018, there was an, a patient who needed to be transported to transported to uh, Mobile, Alabama. He had been injured in some sort of an incident that had to do with a cow. That's so unfortunate. I think it was probably a farmer, you know, and um, that just sounds horrible. It suffered a head trauma, loss of consciousness. And then the nurse on board tried to administer ketamine uh, for this poor person. And so when the nurse went to draw the ketamine up, the vial looked like uh, it, there was some blue substance on the cap, and it just didn't seem right. I'm sure this nurse probably had done this a thousand times. And so the one time when they flipped that cap over and see some weird substance underneath, I'm sure there was something in the, in the back of that person's mind who was just like, um, well, that was that was strange. So then whenever they go to insert the needle into the vial, it didn't give that satisfying sort of puncture you know, that you know mm-hmm. it had not been punctured before, that sort of vacuum seal. So the nurse went ahead and administered the dose anyhow. And then, uh, of course, the anticipated effect did not happen. And then they uh, went ahead and got another vial of ketamine since that didn't cause any relief for the patient and saw that the cap had been glued on to that one as well. So that's 
So horrifying. I would imagine it's probably, it might have been a situation. Do you think they might have been in the air when this happened? Oh, absolutely. I imagine when we have patients that we generally we use ketamine as a uh, part of an RSI process or a rapid sequence intubation. So uh, we use it to sedate patients prior to intubating them. Now, there's a couple other, you know, indications for ketamine continued sedation after intubation. Um, you can use it as a pain relieving property. Ketamine is kind of a wonder drug. So I imagine, you know, if you're, giving this you know particular drug you're either in the back of an ambulance stabilizing a patient prior to loading them in a in an aircraft or you are in the back of an aircraft so it didn't really give you indication kind of what where they were and why they were giving it more so that they were giving it and uh, you know when i was reading this tina i was kind of i was kind of concerned if you had concerns about the integrity of a medication you know, about giving the medication. I agree. I agree. It was sort of shocking that that the nurse went ahead and gave it. And then not once, but twice. I mean, if I got a safety seal on milk, I'm not going to drink the milk. Mm -hmm. But, you know, also, but like giving ketamine, ketamine is a relatively safe and stable drug and has wonderful effects, but... You know, if I'm if I'm looking at that, I'm going, ah, something's not quite right. Let me just go ahead and give you this PCP derivative, you know. Well, uh, do you think that the nurse is just thinking, oh, I, there aren't any other alternatives? Like if the patient is just really combative? Well, there are alternatives, Zeltina. You know, depending on, and that can change from, you know, and that really depends on what your standards of care are for your, we're not like a cookie cutter kind of, kind of thing. So flight mm-hmm. services often can change from state to state, agency to agency within multiple states. But, you know, standards of care generally still dictate that if you have a concern that their medication's not right, you don't give it. That's just that's just safe nursing. That's six rights, you know. So it's not like they were she was or he or she the this nurse only had two vials of ketamine available. There was uh, there were there could other have been there could have been. I mean, some services. So I fly with two services because you know I'm just like super nurse that apparently doesn't like to be home. I don't know. So I fly with two <laughs> different services. One service will carry propofol with them, and of course it needs a physician order. And you know sometimes we can contact our physicians over you know cell phones, radios, whatever. But they carry propofol. But uh, both my protocol sets in both agencies say that I can give morphine, I can give fentanyl, I can give fentanyl and Versed combos. You have some options. Ativan, you know, there's, there's other stuff you can do. So I find it a little concerning. And, and I'm not going to cast judgment. You know, it's so easy to sit here and Monday morning quarterback our colleagues, and that's just poor taste. You know, don't do that. But at the same time, you know, I and I say this more as a cautionary tale, maybe for young nurses or, you know, young and old nurses, student nurses, if you have a worry about something being being tampered with or not looking right, don't give it. Because, you know, how do we know that this, did, this didn't have saline? And I gave away the story. But, you know, how do we know that this isn't, you know, this is okay? How do we know, mm-hmm. you know, that there's not something wrong here, not something screwy, or that it wasn't, you know... Uh, moldy it wasn't you know so if you just right. if you, something's not right say something and you know we are the gatekeepers to our patients safe safe care so we have in 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 flight agents and flight nurses generally have options you know we we have standing protocols quite a few of them i have 70 in my one agency and alone so i mean we have options on august 30th 2018 a special agent with the the fda under their uh criminal investigation office, they interviewed Wester, uh, this nurse, 
And he actually admitted that he did remove the ketamine from two vials on August 26th, the day before that incident happened with that nurse. And he said that about midday on August 26th, he actually asked another nurse on duty for that nurse's set of keys because apparently it's a two-lock system. You can't just go. So really, he, he was just like, oh, can I have your keys? I'm going to go you know, do the safety check or whatever. And the nurse just was like, oh yeah, here you go. And just really sort of overrode that whole step there because the whole point of there being two keys, isn't that that two people are supposed to do it at the same time, not like one person hand over their keys. And we run the same system at my flight service. So one of us will have one set and another will have the other set. We put them in together and we do our counts together. Two sets of eyes. And I mean, even there's even, there even potentially can be four sets of eyes at shift changes. So, I mean. Yeah. And he's, he's just like, oh, hey, you know, like, give me your keys and I'll just go do the equipment check. So they, that nurse gave Wester the keys. He opened the safe and then he just left the side back that that nurse's keys unlocked, left that one unlocked. And so that when he went back later, he, that would already be unlocked. He could use his, his key to unlock the other side and then he was able to withdraw the ketamine from two vials, replace it with saline, and then re-glue the tops of the vials with Dermabond. So I guess there was a zip tie that mm-hmm. were, was securing the plastic narcotics box that was inside the safe, and he cut that zip tie off and replaced it with a new one. This is a very well thought out, well organized, mm-hmm. planned event that took place. This oh, is not something... Yeah, he came prepared with all of the stuff. Um, And who knows, he may have even pocketed empty vials of ketamine before that he maybe in a a safer time, maybe at home or something, he could sit and doctor it up however he wanted to and then kind of bring it and swap it out. I don't know. Oh, and I think about this too, Tina. Like, so Mm -hmm. how easy it is in that particular incidence to just have taken waste because we don't always administer the entire thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, and we're not like working in a hospital where we have a Pixis or anything like that. We're, We're literally carrying little pockets. So it's just easy enough. So this probably wasn't the first time he did it. It was the first time he got caught. Yeah, sure. But I mean, you have a GCS3 patient who, you know, so we always try to keep people comfortable. We assume people are feeling pain. So even if they're not moving, that doesn't mean the body's not feeling pain. You want to keep people comfortable. So how many patients that couldn't move or express traditional signs of pain or, or something, how many of them got ketamine in the past mm-hmm. and it wasn't ketamine? Right, because... And if he's the one that's administering the ketamine, mm-hmm. ha- how many times has he just sort of um, pocketed the ketamine and really just flushed um, saline through their veins? Oh, absolutely. It's kind of upsetting when you think about how many times that probably happened to someone. Mm-hmm. Horrible, horrible. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. So that's really what happened. I mean, that's it's a pretty basic uh, story, but that's what happened. That's what he did. He kind of went, I'm sure this is the sort of thing that happens in hospitals and clinics all across the country. People who have, for whatever reason, maybe they have an addiction, maybe they're trying to sell the, the medication, maybe they have a, a family member that needs the medicine for whatever reason. This sort of thing happens all the time. But when I think about it happening 
in this situation, these people are in these emergent situations. They're and, a lot of times what you're saying in pain. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, and you know what's even more concerning is so I mean you said it yourself and you nailed it. So one of the one of the you had said about I have a little bit of education. My master's degree for nursing is a specialty of forensic nursing. And you know, we talk a lot of topics. I have spent a great deal of time uh, learning about sexual assault nurse examinations, um, learning about illicit drug usage. And I read, was reading this and was thinking, gosh, what is his rationale? Because it doesn't say. And um, I mean, he was mandated to potentially get it, uh, drug rehabilitation services. And so flight nursing is also subject toward the FAA standards. So we're, we're, we fall under, as in a lot of places, we fall under as crew. So we're not considered passengers like you would be if you were to go on a flight. So you go on a flight on like American Airlines, United Airlines, you're not held to any kind of real standards unless you sit in an emergency row, in which case, you know, you're going to be asked to help deploy the little floaty raft things or, you know, whatever of that nature. But crew is different. Crew means that you take an operational role. So therefore, you know, you're expected to do some things under FAA standards. But somebody who is under addiction or who has an addiction or is, you know, indulging in substance abuse, even including alcohol, we have rules of eight, you know, it's called eight hours bottle to throttle, which means you have eight hours from the time you indulge in alcohol to be able to qualify to, to get on an aircraft because of the way that we roll. You know, you think of this man, you know, taking ketamine and then being asked to operate around a spinning rotor blade of death in the back of the helicopter, but also being able to help with communications through our radios, being helped to program GPS systems that help literally fly the aircraft. You know, in the event of a hard landing, being able to ask to deploy extinguisher systems, putting out fires, evacuate the crew cab. It's it's, it's crazy. It is crazy to think. But then why? Why did this man, you know, as you said, is he, is he selling it? Does he have a family member? Or is he, does he have more insidious things? Is he, you know, picking up women at bars and slipping powder into their drinks? I mean, we hear about mm-hmm. drinks getting spiked all over the place. I mean, ketamine is crazy. Ketamine is immediate release. So when you use it as an IV drug, uh, when you use it as an IV for like therapeutics, so it's a class three scheduled substance and it's a NDMA receptor uh, antagonist. It's got a lot of great uses. So we use it uh, for sedative. It's an anesthetic that comes back from like the 1950s. They found it had great uses in like primates when they were trying to, you know, give them surgery. So it's, it has like actual, it came from veterinary medicine essentially. I mean, it's like a kind of like a PCP med where it indulges like, or gives you like hallucinations and just makes you feel very out of your body. But they found that it has pain relief, and it just makes you depersonalize. Um, But we use it in medicine for anesthesia. We use it for amnesia. We use it for pain relief. It has so many great uses. Then you start getting into the insidious nature of ketamine, and it's very quick. You give it through an IV. It takes maybe 10, 15 seconds to kick in 30 tops. Wears off relatively quick in the IV use. But when you start giving it like IM or IO or or I'm sorry, I am or orally, it takes like two hours, four hours to wear off for a recovery time. So you slip it into a powder into some girl's drink, it kicks in right away. She's very uninhibited. She can have hallucinations, loss of coordination, just, you know, she's, she's perfect prey. So was he using it for himself to dissociate? Was he, and, and get high, was he using it as a facilitation drug? I mean, this is, by nature, this was special K. Like, 
it's known. <laughs> it was right mm-hmm. up there. And I, I remember hearing about it back in high school, which seemed like a million years ago. We're not going to talk about that. But, you mm-hmm. know, I remember hearing it right up there with GHB, Special K. Like, you know, don't, you know, check your drinks. So it's just for what is such an amazing miracle drug we're using for these patients, you know, it has such insidious, horrible consequences mm-hmm. elsewise. Yeah, I just, I really, it doesn't say what he was using it for. It doesn't say really, even that he was under the influence at any time or that they found it in his system. Um, it pretty much just says, I mean, they sentenced him because he did admit to doing that. They sent they sentenced him to imprisonment for 12 months and one day for tampering with the product. And then as part of the sentence, he ordered that he undergo three years of supervised release after finishing his term of imprisonment and then pay a $100 mandatory special assessment. And then he had to receive substance abuse and mental health treatment as directed by the U.S. Probation Office. And then, of course, he had to pay $511.48 to a patient victim in the case, which is so weird. What a specific amount of thought. Yeah. I, I don't know. That, I felt like that was so strange. That was strange. But that's, I mean, I've, I feel like this, it scares me to think about how, mu- how many times this sort of thing might happen all the time, every day in hospitals all across. You know, this is one incident that happened and a nurse came along and saw Mm -hmm. the evidence and then had the nerve to speak up. You know, some people might think, well, someone's probably gonna think I'm I'm crazy. It's probably, or am I just imagining this? Or I I don't know. Think about just this recently with the, with the pharmacologist that was found, or uh, sorry, uh, yeah, the pharmacologist. Well, I feel like that word sounds weird. (laughs) Think about the Mm -hmm. vaccines that were left out. I mean, somebody had to think they were nuts, just like, oh, the vaccines that were left out in um, Aurora. Was it Aurora? Did the, Oh, really? I didn't know, I didn't know oh, about that. Oh, yeah. This. It was the Moderna vaccine. The COVID vaccines? Yeah. Yeah, there was, oh. um, uh, and they were, they were left out by this pharmacologist that uh, he left them out two times to, to tamper with them because he didn't believe they were safe. Uh, and they threw out 500 plus doses because they were no longer they were no longer safe, but actually fifty seven people got administered those doses. Oh shoot! But you just got to think about like the, it, I was actually I think a pharmacy tech that walked by and saw them out for no reason out of the refrigerator. And Which and I, for, from what I understand, they have to stay mm-hmm. in that very specific temperature right up until right before it's given. Yeah. They cannot sit out. Yeah. So, I mean, like, and I think it really takes a powerful person to, this is when I say, when you see something, say something. And, you know, whistleblowing is, if you, when it comes to patient safety, you got to speak up. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we took, we may not be doctors that took the Hippocratic Oath per se, but as nursing, we are the gatekeepers to patient safety. And the worst thing you can do is, by reporting, is, is tick somebody off. But the best thing you can do is make sure that there's a safety aspect for your patient care. So yeah. I would rather be wrong that I said something than ever find out that I didn't speak up and somebody paid the ultimate price because of my complacency, I want to say. Well, and that's something that we talk about a lot on this podcast, the fact that we do, we do a, the bad nurse story. The whole purpose of us doing the Badner story is to kind of bring shine a light on some of the dark mm-hmm. things that can happen in our profession or just in the in the world in general. Sometimes people in the medical profession are great at their jobs and then at home they do crazy things. Mm-hmm. But 
if you don't, if you if you talk about these things, then will help people hopefully listen to this situation and think, you know, maybe if they're ever in that situation, they'll hopefully maybe give them some courage to speak up and say something. We've talked about surgeries, people being in surgeries and seeing a doctor doing doing something just absolutely ridiculous oh, absolutely. and wrong, you know, and a nurse going, "What? What are you doing?" You know, and having uh, the courage to s- actually literally say something out loud. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's the sort of thing that we we have to do. And really, and you know what? It, and it is such a. This is something I talk about a lot in in my blog and on Instagram. Is the difference since leaving Scrubs and coming to a flight suit, and how uh, when I say something, people listen a little differently. So when I was in Scrubs and I would make a concern or note something or suggest a treatment, you know, doctors pushed back quite a bit. They were like, ah, I don't think that's the best thing. And then, you know, ah, I got this. Nah, no, no, no. And they dismiss you. But then, you know, you put the flight suit on a couple months later, same person. You are the same exact person, same exact degree, same exact everything. All that changed was my job title. And suddenly it's like, oh, you know what? That's a great idea. Let's do that. And it's like, nothing changed except for my mm. uniform, dude. Like, you know, mm. a couple months ago, you were just talking down to me like I was stupid. Now I switched my job title and now <laughs> suddenly it's yes, ma'am, <laughs> no, ma'am. But, you know, it's, it's, it's the thing is that was, and when people have, if you have a concern about something and you feel like you're not being listened to, I mean, you got to follow those gut instincts. I can't yeah. tell you how many times I've butt heads with doctors about things and I really empower you. I mean, the worst thing you're going to be is wrong, but you need to speak up. There is no shame in that. I would 100% times rather be wrong. And it takes a strong person to come to that conclusion that you would rather speak up and be wrong, but speak up than to hold that inside and let something happen. I would, it took a lot of, I took, I've eaten a lot of humble pie. I should be like 400 pounds by now. I've eaten so much <laughs> humble pie. But I tell you, even still, like as a flight nurse, I've made suggestions and been wrong. And, you know, I just ask, hey, can you explain to me why, why am I wrong? And sometimes there's no answer. But if you can make your case and you can say, hey, this is why, this is why I think this X, Y, Z, you know, here's what I've found, here's what I see, and, you know, here's what I think we should do. And, uh, you know, this is, this is why I think this. And you got to speak up and you got to make your case. And if, if they're not listening and there's something going sideways, speak up. That's so true. And, you know, and you were talking about the, uh, sometimes the lack of respect that nurses get mm. um, from from doctors from time to time. And the thing is, if you, if you allow that to, to, to uh, keep you, you know, to cause you to be quiet and not say anything, um, you're not doing your patient any favors, that's for sure. Correct. But you're not doing yourself any favors either because the more you do that, um, for one thing, I know good and well that uh, every single doctor, every single nurse, every person on this planet that's ever done anything has been wrong at some point oh, in absolutely. their life. Everybody, we've all, those doctors, I, I work at a teaching hospital. And so I understand now more than I ever did that everybody's human. Doctors don't know everything just because they went to medical school. They step out onto the floor, just like nurses, mm-hmm. from you know, they they wheel into the uh, parking lot on two wheels for medical school. They walk in there and, and they're expected to be a doctor yeah. and they are a doctor. But they don't know. They don't know anything. They I know. They, they'll be the first to tell you that too a lot of times. They're just, they're scared to death. Their eyes are huge. And so we need to be patient with them. And uh, we need to understand that just like nurses, we're the mm-hmm. same way, you know, 
when I transferred to CBICU almost a year ago, I was horrified. I had been a nurse for four years and I was very comfortable on the floor that I was on before. And then when I started in CBICU, I, I just... I was just absolutely horrified all the time to go to work. Every single, I was afraid all the time. So it's scary, but you got to do it. You got to be strong, be brave. And the more you do that, before you know it, you'll just be doing it, not even realizing it. Absolutely. You know, Mm -hmm. just practice. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, it's funny because this is my last thought on this, I think, because I have a bunch of friends that are EMS and firemen and all this, and they used to hate, hate, hate when I would tell stories about, you know, how, how, you know, oh, I did this today. You know, the doctor was, you know, not right. And I caught this. Like, you know, for me, it was a matter of pride. It wasn't necessarily a brag. It was more of a, you know, I'm growing. Like I did this, you know, I made a, I made a difference. It wasn't a, hey, silly doctor, you're dumb. It was more of a, hey, I'm growing into myself. Hey, you know, I made a difference in something. But, you know, sometimes we, it comes off braggy and the way people, other people perceive you, it's not always good. It's not what you mean, but perception's everything, always. So uh, my friends would, would would joke and they had pictures of me like with memes saying about how Steph knows more than a doctor until they actually got on, on their practice as paramedics and have had to fight with doctors. And then I'm like, okay, now you see that you do not have to be a surgeon or a doctor to know what's best for your patient. Because, mm-hmm. you know, you are now seeing that anybody has the capability of being wrong. It doesn't mean that anybody's smarter than anybody. Some people have more education, but education doesn't always mean common sense exists. And it doesn't mean they're always staying up on the best practices. Mm-hmm. I mean, nursing is different in that we spend more time with our patients and we have a feel for who they are and maybe the subtle changes. Or, you know, physicians have very little time in and out of rooms, so they may miss a small sign. They may miss a piece of the story. That's not a fault of theirs. It's just the way the system's built. So I think mm-hmm. a little bit of more understanding compassion to EMS providers and what they do, nursing and what they do, physicians and what they do, RT, you know, x-ray, lab, you know, understanding goes a long way. But, you know, advocating for yourself every step of the sure. way. Absolutely. Yes, everything that you, you're you saying, um, 100%. And I'm so glad. Uh, there are a lot of nursing students and new grads that listen to this podcast. So I love that they're hearing all of this conversation because it is so important to hear. Many of you will not go to work at a teaching hospital. So you're not going to figure this out quickly. So you're you're going to be feeling so insecure um, I remember the very first job I ever had was at this, I didn't work there very long because I was, it, it was not a good situation, but it was at this little hospital, a little country hospital. And part of the orientation was a doctor that apparently was a big wig around there. And he was sort of, had been there forever and everybody knew who he was. And he would come in and basically do, as part of the nursing orientation, do this class I don't even know what the purpose was other than he wanted control of what the nurses were learning, kind of guide you as to how to look at doctors or, or him or something. It, it, didn't, I, I, it didn't sit well with me because he said, what's the number one thing that you're the most afraid of? And then he had this on his PowerPoint. It said, is it the big, scary doctors? And I was just like, that is so incredible. That's demeaning. <laughs> Insulting. I was just like, oh, wow. I just didn't, I didn't get it. I see what he's trying to do, mm-hmm. but no. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, it's it's there's a lot of assumptions made there um, on his part. And bro, I'm more scared about mixing up metoprolol tartrate and metoprolol succinate. Right. 
That's the first thing that would come, that popped into my head is making a man. Or error. making sure I poop in the right bathroom. I don't even know. <laughs> That's very important as well. <laughs> Where is the poop bathroom? It's an it's uh, nursing students. The poop bathroom is in radiology. <laughs> there are people in radiology are going what? <laughs> Meanwhile, they're pooping in they're pooping in, in an emergency department. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's just going around everybody else's hall, and you're just like, "Why is my hall your poop bathroom?" <laughs> <laughs> but nobody poops in the break room, and nobody nobody nukes tuna. Well, I have been known to bring my salmon, and I've always feel bad. Oh, you're the one founder. Founder. I'm terrible. I am so bad, but I always forget. I don't know why until right when I'm about to heat it up and I think, oh, people are about to be really mad at me right now. This is I came from ER land. So this is how you can tell a CVICU nurse from an ER nurse. They get lunch. We get we do. It might be four o'clock, but usually <laughs> no, we do. Now flight flight, it's like, okay, either have lunch all day and I have multiple snacks, or I'm like, what is lunch? I got jerky in my pocket. <laughs> I got some nuts from a couple days ago. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Oh, but we digress. Well, that was our bad uh, nurse story. Yeah, that's a bad one though. Oh my goodness, yeah. Well, I guess we can get into our good nurse story. I'm excited about this one. I'm going to let you take control of this because you you got so excited about this story. Oh, I, I know. was excited about it. <laughs> and so I love just hearing when you and I were just chatting about it before. I love hearing you talk about it, how excited you were about it. I think it's a great story. Oh, you know, and it was it was one of those things it was like like I said, so we are going to be talking about amazing amazing flight nurse Georgie Bristol and Guys, go out and look her up. She's got a video of her talking with the VA and just what a wonderful person. And she unfortunately passed away last year, Um, but amazing, amazing person. Uh, So I can't really lay the foundation and the context about this woman without really telling you the, the story of flight nursing. And uh, I hate to really bungle you down with a history lesson, but you got to understand where. No, a lot of nursing students will use some of these stories for for like homework and oh, stuff. Oh, good, so no, they, good. They love it. Okay, they love it. So flight nursing. I'm going to take you way, way back. Okay, so Tina, <laughs> without pretending not knowing our notes, I'm going to ask you: When did the first medical flight happen? Okay, without it, it just if I were just trying to think on my own without uh-huh. knowing the notes, yeah. Um, I would say somewhere in the early 1900s. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Uh, it's crazy. Wrong, right? I know, it's crazy. 1870. How is that possible? I know, right? Oh, no, I think about it through. What was in the air at 18, set in the 1800s? It wasn't an airplane. Well, it wasn't, well, I mean, it could have been a bird to stop him, like, like straight out of like Lord of the Rings, like the, the eagles <laughs> were, were evacuating Gandalf. Like the Wizard of Oz. But speaking of Wizard of Oz, it was a hot air balloon. Yeah, it wasn't a tornado. It was a hot air balloon. So, well, now there's a way to try to get somebody to the hospital. I know, right? It's going to take you a little bit. But. So mm-hmm. no, we're, I'm going to take you back to the Siege of Paris. Um, so during the Siege of Paris, uh, there were 160 wounded soldiers uh, back in 1870. They used hot air balloons to evacuate these soldiers. And that was the first, like, real invention of flight medevac. That is crazy. So they just bundle them up. And yeah, and so and here was I was thinking. And so me, being me, I sat there was like, okay, hot air balloons. They are slow as molasses. And yeah. uh, that's what I was thinking when I saw that. I was like, what? Now, I, I'm really a big proponent of, okay, let's get them to safety. But then at the same time, I'm thinking, well, why didn't they just shoot the air balloons down? Ugh. Right, right. Okay, okay. I'm glad we're on the same page. Like, hooray, save the guys. But then at the time, why didn't they just shoot them down? I got nothing. Okay, so when we actually talk about the 1900s, 
there's like two different types of real flight nursing in, in that we use. We use fixed wing, which is your actual planes, and we use rotary, which is helicopters. So if you hear me talking about that, fixed wing is a plane, rotary is a helicopter, helicopter, rotary, fixed wing, plane. So the real first one actually occurred in 1917. Um, So this was a back, uh, it was a British unit. Uh, They had a guy that got shot in the ankle, um, you know, angle shot. Uh, Totally worth a flight, a flight, I guess. (laughs) Because it's like man's nipples. I'm sorry to all my men. But, you know, we (laughs) need to apparently evacuate this guy. So it would have been a three-day journey. Um, So a three-day journey took 45 minutes. So they would have had to drag this guy with his ankle shot. Uh, for 45 <laughs> minutes, or it took 45 minutes. Um, so uh, 1918, uh, we're looking at the Great War now. Uh, the French actually were like doing this big study of mortality, and they found that their normal mortality was about 60%. They dropped that to 10 by using fixed-wing aircraft. Wow. I know, so it was actually like <laughs> EBP, evidence-based practice, let's use yeah. airplanes to move people around. To, to That's a no-brainer. Yeah, absolutely. So when you think about trauma care, you know, Getting people to definitive practice or definitive care, um, you know, the quicker the better. So they actually documented, hey, this makes a difference. Um, so and then you start getting out to like the next year where, I'm sorry, 30 years later. So we knew this was making a big difference, but we really didn't do much for it with it for the next 30 years. So at this point, we're about into World War II uh, and we are looking at about Burma. So there were a three British shoulders, there were three British shoulders that were stuck 100 miles behind enemy lines. So you got these guys who are just kind of chilling and you got Japanese all around them. Well, of course, you know, the U.S. Army comes in with their Sikorsky. Sikorsky is a really, really bougie type uh, helicopter. I like Sikorsky's, that's just me. Uh, So (laughs) they brought the Sikorsky in. And back then, helicopters were not set up for passengers. Uh, So this is said, one guy did the pilot. And generally speaking, they were used to shuttle um, equipment back and forth. So they may have had like an exterior basket. So, you know, they go in over enemy lines and it took them four trips to bring all three over. So they're flying through, you know, like guys shooting at them. Um, the helicopters at the time uh, couldn't quite get the altitude they needed because air, you know, air up there is very thin, very cold. And you've got the guys in the exterior basket that are just like, oh, I'm so cold. Oh. So they had to land, let them warm up and, you know, re-oxygenate again and then continue oh, on. gosh, that sounds so miserable. I know, oh. but I guess it's better than dying, like cold and shivering True. or shivering and hypoxic is better than the, the dead, I guess. I don't know. Gosh. So here we are in 44, 30 years later, after like the best practices to move people around is, you know, here we are. <laughs> so, you know, you're really looking at the evolution of this, uh, the Navy and the, so back then the U.S. Army and Air Force were one. So Army and Air Force were one. They were not split to Army slash Air Force. They were just one entity. Back then they were like, hmm, okay, I think we should probably start training some nurses to go out and do the things. So they made a school for nurses to go do the things. So what they did is they started a school. And they started this school for flight nurses in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, actually on Bowman Field. So they turned a baseball field into a flight nurse school. Uh, And this was about 1942 in the fall that they put their first flight nurses through and graduated 39 nurses in February of 43. So within the next year, by the end of 44, they had graduated 1,500 nurses. Wow. So they really cranked them out. Uh, (laughs) The U.S. Navy was like, all right, 
U.S. Army, Navy, or Air Force, we see you. We're going to start our own flight nurse school. <laughs> so Alameda, California in 1944 started theirs. Um, and that was, I think, in another baseball field. I don't know what it is about baseball fields, but they started their own. And by the end of January of 1945, they graduated 24. So we've got, you know, the multiple branches of the military realizing that, hey, nurses are a great entity and we need to start training them for, for to go out into the field. So they were taking nurses that had joined the military and they trained them um, now not only to be nurses, but they trained them in really cool things. So they taught them aeromedical physiology, uh, field survival, taught them how to read maps, taught them how to like get camouflaged, how to, in the event of a crash, how to ditch the plane, um, all the procedures that are surrounding that. They have taught these nurses how to use parachutes. So like there were nurses like little legitimately like parachuting out of planes. They did you know, daily calisthenics. They conditioned these nurses. And they basically taught these nurses how to, like, camp without using any tents or any sorts of natural cover. And they ran simulations of doing all this under enemy fire. Wow. I'm like, when I went through training for a flight nurse, I was more like, okay, don't walk into the tail rotor. <laughs> Here are the emergency exits. You know, here's some flight physiology. You know, air expands when you go up in the air. And, you know, I didn't have to learn how to do it under enemy fire. I didn't have to learn to, like, smear mud all over my face. I didn't have to learn to do all these, I'm going to say these BA kind of things. Because I'm going to monitor my my mouth here. But all these really (laughs) cool, hardcore, neat things that they had to learn because they're going to a war. They're not going to knowing, yes, knowing that there is a war actively going on right now. Oh, absolutely. Wow. Yeah, and you got to remember something. Back then, nurses wore white dresses. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, that, that, that didn't fly. Hmm, that didn't fly back then. No, so <laughs> you can thank flight nursing for pants. <laughs> ah. <laughs> we were way ahead of the times there. So, no, they I actually like changed all of the uniforms um, because they were looking at nurses and they're like, yeah, no, nah, you can't wear a white dress in the middle of, like, a war zone. It just ain't going to fly. <laughs> like, you're, you're going to try high heel on it through, like, the mud in the middle of a— <laughs> <laughs> Let me know how you know it's going to work. It ain't. <laughs> no. So they redid the entire nursing uniform. So they obviously had their dress uniforms, which may have been a skirt or whatever, um, depending on the branch, depending. There was multiple versions of it. They actually redid, like, their own—they had their own flight shield and their own badges and everything. So flight nursing just completely redid how nursing was seen. So they were the first nurses who actually got to wear pants. Not only that, flight nursing back in that day was just really cool because they actually were ranked higher than their male cohorts, like their surgical techs. So they were officers in their own right that male surgical techs had to report to. Mm, okay. And this was something I didn't really know. Like, I knew nursing had evolved over time, but back in the World Wars, you know, nurses weren't allowed to start basic procedures that we take for granted today. They weren't allowed to administer oxygen. They weren't allowed to start IVs. Those were physician skills. Hmm. I know. I'm like, anymore, I'm running on a BLS ambulance as an EMT, and I'm slapping oxygen on everybody per, you know, national registry. I'm like, oh, you got toe pain? You're getting 15 liters non-rebreather, you know? You, you know, yeah. whatever. You had, you had a— had a headache about 15 years ago, 15, 15 liters non-rebreather, you know. <laughs> but then you take for granted that something as simple as administering oxygen was a physician's skill back then. These nurses were doing it. I mean, they were working um, independently of their physicians based on protocols. You know, back before the Department of Transportation was even, they even had EMTs working in the United States. So, you know, when we joke around about EMS and nursing having this kind of 
you know, oh, we work, we, you have to talk to doctors, you need orders. Oh, well, we have, you know, higher pay. And we have this kind of constant match between EMS and nursing. Well, you know, flight nurses have been long working on protocol sets that physicians have sent them way before EMT has even existed in the United States. So kind of got that one one up. But so it was really kind of cool <laughs> how flight nursing really set the grounds for a lot of things. Um, but just really, really cool because, like, the ner- like flight nurses were flying with no physicians on board, you know, for really long flights um, from even just evac from, you know, the point of care of the actual battles to back to, like, surgical evac areas all the way out to hospital ships across the sea from, you know, war zones back to the United States. They were going everywhere. So that was pretty cool. So when you start seeing, you know, in World War II, um, you go to the Korean War. And the Korean War is what people are usually pretty familiar with, because if you've ever seen MASH, I mean, mm-hmm. those are those field surgical units. Um, and, and this is more of that concept of where they were seeing more helicopter use versus the more of the uh, fixed wings. So when you get to the Korean War, you see these helicopters that are going out to the actual battlefields, bringing soldiers back so they can get you know stabilized enough in these surgical units, um, like what MASH was based on, and then they could be evacuated from you know these surgical units out to hospital ships, which had more advanced capabilities that were more like the traditional surgical surgical units. So, But the thing is, though, is, is I guess the common misconception is that flight nursing and these helicopters were more used for those field evacuations. Well, actually, they're used more for moving from the field surgical units out to these hospitals. But what's impressive is when you consider the difference that flight has made in medicine, and I'm going to about wrap this all up here for the for this part. Flights made a huge difference. World War II, traditionally prior to the invent of flight, uh, saw probably about 4.5 deaths per 100 casualties. Now you start adding flight and flight nursing, they see 2.5 per 100. So they, they almost halved it. Um, yeah. And it's estimated probably, I think what I saw was 20,000 injured soldiers were, chel- were evacuated by helicopter in the Korean War. That's insane. That's amazing. 20,000. Oh. 20,000. Yeah. That's insane. Um, it is. So generally speaking, like they, one of the biggest, you know, attributions to why lives were saved in, you know, the Korean War at least was because of the event of the helicopter and the use of the helicopter. Um, and it wasn't, you know, there were some other things that were invented. Like, you know, you saw better surgical techniques. You saw better meds. You saw better... Just better use of medica- like medical um, techniques and so on and so forth during the Korean War. But, but the thing that really made the difference for patients was that faster access to definitive care. It was the hot lights, mm-hmm. cold steel. Nice. So you think back to all your AHA classes and the chain of survival. Mm-hmm. What's the mm-hmm. final chain? Definitive care. Nice. I love it. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that's the thing about flight nursing. Flight nursing made this huge revolutionary change. And then when you consider, you know, Georgie, Georgie, uh, she um, is from North Carolina. So she was born in Burke County uh, back in 1924. And this is our good nurse. And this is our fantastic nurse. Um, (laughs) So she passed away August of last year. She was 95 years old. She had 30 years of flight. Um, Yeah, it was a really, really impressive, impressive career. And she was working during a time where just just one year prior uh, was the first version of the Equal Rights Amendment. And 
And that mm-hmm. amendment said that men and women shall have equal rights throughout the United States and every place subject to its jurisdiction. And that was mm-hmm. massive. It was a huge, huge achievement. And even still with that, that's 40 years prior to the Equal Pay Act by Congress. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that particular act was promising things like equal wages for the same work based on, you know, race, color, religion, sex. So here was Georgie doing all of the same things with no protections in place for her wage. So we don't know what she was paid because nobody ever really asked. We don't know what her, her benefits were. We don't know how she was treated. We don't know what she was subject to. She didn't talk about it. Um, with this interview I watched with her, she was grateful for what she did. She was happy about what she did. She, the, the, the positivity she instilled when asked, you know, what kind of, what would you tell younger generations? Uh, and she said, be good and mm. do well and be hopeful. Very positive things. But she doesn't talk about, you know, what, what could have happened or what did happen or, you know, the unfairness of what could have happened under the fact that she had no protections is amazing mm. to her character. So anyway, uh, Miss Bristol, she, uh, she graduated from nursing school and then she immediately joined the Air Force in 1949. So about this time is where the Army and the Air Force split. So they, I don't remember exactly what year, but Army and Air Force, like I said, they were the same entity and then they split. And in her interview, she's like, well, she was asked, why did you go Air Force instead of Army? She's like, well, all my friends went to the Army and I wanted to do something different. <laughs> so she literally went, went, she went alone. She went by herself, which is even more impressive. You know, she could have <laughs> followed all her friends and no, she, she blazed her own trail. Yeah, so at that point, you know, when I had talked to you guys about, about the fact that flight nursing, you know, came around in 42, 43, 44, you know, it's only six years old at this point. So she came into mm-hmm. a relatively new field, you know, as, a, as an African-American woman. Um, and the base she trained at was in Wichita, Texas. It was Shepard Air Force Base. Um, and that was before she became a, a flight nurse. Uh, and that's actually where she included going to flight school. Uh, she was in both Vietnam and the Korean Wars. And basically her job was keeping, stable, uh, keeping wounded soldiers stable, uh, keeping them comfortable uh, during all of her transports. And she said that she participated in multiple country flights where she transported them back and forth in a U.S. Uh, B-52 bomber. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so cool. bomber. They used a lot of different planes. They used like, uh, oh gosh, they used like C-47, C-46s, C-54s. Um, these are all, and I'm not sure how much you guys know about planes, but if you know what the C-130, C-130 Hercules is, it's this massive transport plane. Um, these were all like the predecessors uh, of the Lockheed Martin C-130 Hercules. And if you've ever seen them, they're massive, like long, big wings, propellers. Uh, If you've ever saw one, you would know one. So she flew in these little B-52 bomber kind of deals, you know, Mm. back and forth. So it's pretty cool. (laughs) (laughs) So she just, uh, she just talked about, and what was impressive to me is some of the things that we do as a flight nurse is we have to watch our patients very carefully with, you know, very, very sophisticated equipment. Um, we, we do end titles to help monitor, uh, you know, how are they doing? Is there changes in their respiration rates or their perfusion? We look at their you know, EKGs. We look at their blood pressures. 
you know, if they have an arterial line, we're looking at those, we're looking at CVPs, you know, if they have ventriculostomies, we're, we're thinking of so much in terms of not only patient status, but how is their transport affecting them? You know, when you go up in altitude, uh, there is uh, a law called Boyle's Law. And Boyle's Law dictates that the higher you go up, the less the pressure is. But the less pressure there is, the more that air expands. And these are important for concepts in trauma, such as if you have a pneumothorax or, you know, air, air in the chest cavity or pneumocephalus, air in, the, air in the head or any kind of pneuma anything. But Georgie talked about back in, in Korea and Vietnam doing these long-distance flights in pressurized cabins and flying at different altitudes. Georgie back in Korea and Vietnam didn't have the sophisticated materials I do to monitor. She did this strictly based on her patient assessment skills. I sat back and I was just like, well, dang, Georgie. <laughs> <laughs> so impressive. I know. And I mean, that is what makes, she was so impressive to me because like, I didn't realize that nurses back then still considered that kind of thing. Like, you know, you got to give credit to some of these nurses. Like I always have been under the impression that nursing back before pants was, was a lot of handmaiden to doctor kind of thing, which mm-hmm. is unfair because, you know, that's a very derogatory and stereotypical viewpoint of older nursing. Um, but you think that, oh, we've got great technology, we've got all these things, and but then you forget nurses like Georgie who had less and did more. Right. That's profound, man. That's so <laughs> profound. <laughs> I saw that she's talking about, you know, flight fizz, and I'm just like, you go, girl. Like, dang, Georgie. <laughs> So Georgie retired back in like 79. And like I said, she did 30 years of flight nursing and she retired as a lieutenant colonel. Um, So she was, she made, she made a, made a, made a lot of noise for herself. Now, why is this really, really important? Uh, So Miss Georgie uh, was, she's an African-American woman and the military has not always been as, open and friendly to people of color as it is becoming. Um, And I say becoming is simply because of we're not quite to where we need to be yet. And I think this is a conversation that needs to continue to ensure the equality of our, of our, our brothers and sisters of people of color. But when you look back in the world war, in world war II, um, there's a really, really disappointing time uh, in our history. Um, So 1944, uh, there was a, huge call for nursing. Uh, lots of young men were dying in service and there were, at that time, 40,000 white nurses. 40,000, so that's a pretty chunk, good chunk number of nurses. Yet there was still a huge amount of, of white you know, male soldiers dying, uh, black male soldiers dying. There was still a large need. There was such a need. They were still discussing, actually starting a nursing draft. So not just drafting young men to go fight, but actually drafting nurses to come serve. So at wow. that time, of the 40,000 white nurses, there were 300 black women. Wow. I know. <laughs> so it gets worse. The only reason black women pretty much were even allowed to serve is because of the Spanish flu. The Spanish really? flu had, had impacted the, the cause so greatly throughout the years that there just simply weren't enough people to serve. So I, I forget exactly what year they desegregated and said that black nurses could serve. 
but, uh, and I thought I had that in my notes and I apologize, I don't, uh, but the Spanish flu had created such a, a vacuum that um, the service was opened up to black nurses. So these are, these are women. Now, mind you, this is, they were not training them. They were, they were already trained. They were women that were already nurses coming in with the same level of training as white nurses. So the only reason they had even opened the service to them was because of the, uh, they needed them. So it wasn't the it wasn't a philanthropic thing. It was a okay. Well, I guess we'll begrudgingly let you in, right, which is we have to do this. Correct. Mm-hmm. And even still, um, when they were finally allowed to come and join, there was still segregation. So black women nurses who came and joined were only allowed to serve black uh, male soldiers in their in their particular camps, or they were relegated to POW camps. And this is something I also didn't know. Here in the United States, we had a hundred and sixty. I want to say hundred. Oh, I'm sorry, six hundred. I'm a liar. Six hundred POW camps in the United States, where we brought three hundred seventy one, six hundred and eighty three German POWs. That's three hundred seventy one thousand. POWs we've brought back. So we had that many German POWs here in the United States and uh, our African-American nurses were, who signed up to care for, for American soldiers were told, nope, you go take care of POWs. So POWs are still, again, humans who need, they need, still need care in their camps. But when you are an African-American woman who signed up to care for you know, your, your soldiers, it's kind of a slap in the face to be said, okay, well, you get to go and work in a camp full of men who look down upon you because they're racially superior. Not only that, mm-hmm. but when you are mistreated by those so-called racially superior men and you report it to your chain of command, your complaints are not going to be listened to. And the soldiers that are guarding the POWs sometimes fraternize with the German POWs while you are not even allowed to eat in the same social hall as your colleagues. Wow. That's profoundly disgusting. I'm sorry. I Mm -hmm. I don't care who you are. That's disgusting. Because these women signed up for the same service as other white women. And they actually went so far as to as soon as a white female uh, nurse unit was fully full, or it was, if it was full, they would swap them out for a black regiment and, and put the black regiment in the POW camps. <sighs> I know wow. that is not acceptable. So by the end of World War II, we had skyrocketed up to 59,000 nurses. So I guess that's a little better. They didn't have to draft nurses. Um, the disgusting part, though, is, is we only increased the black nurse representation from 300 to 500. And... It, yeah, because they, they put a cap on, that was an official cap that they placed um, on how many were, on how many slots they had to fill of African-American nurses. Isn't, isn't that right? I think I remember doing this on a previous Correct. Uh, story. Correct. That there there was literally a cap like, oh, we've got our quota. Yep. No no others yep. are allowed, even so, though you have so many people. Oh, absolutely. To do so it. after, you know, threatening and threatening to have a nurse nursing draft, only 0.8%, not even 1%, 0.8% of the workforce for the World War II was black at the time. Wow. Which is, when you consider that 9,000 black nurses applied and were told, you are not found suitable for service because of your color. That's disgusting. That's I'm sorry. Horrifying. That is absolutely yeah. disgusting. When, when you consider how many men, young men, died unnecessarily because they didn't have the care they needed. That's that's blood on American hands, and I'm 
not apologizing for saying that. That's that's unacceptable when you've had tra- nurses that were trained to the same standard as white nurses, and then you d- you you said no. Right. I, I there there is no there is no excuse for it. There's no justification for it. I it's hard to believe it's as recent in the past as it is. Mm-hmm. You know, because real even though it was forty years ago, fifty years ago, <sighs> however long ago it was, it's that's not that long ago. No. And 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 there and it, it just in the past you know you know a few decades um, even more appalling things um, have happened. So it's for people in uh, in our our contemporaries um, to say that racism doesn't exist anymore. It's a thing of the past. Um, I think that that's just um, this is proof that that is um, definitely not true. And it's something that we have to always keep out in front of us and talk about, keep talking about it. So, because that's the only thing that's ever going to change behaviors is us talking about it, us being willing to just, you know, speak about it out loud. um, Absolutely. But I not be ignorant. really, really think, you know, when you look at the sheer amount that, so given that, I think that's what makes, you really can't pay homage, I think to just how amazing Nurse Bristol's achievements are without recognizing just the mountains she climbed. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So I, yes. that sheer amount of, of, you know, not only getting into the service, then getting into the flight school, and then considering to, continuing to serve for three decades and uh, obtaining, attaining a, uh, you know, climbing the ranks to lieutenant colonel. Um, and then before she passed, being able to say with positivity, about her service. Um, it speaks to her character a lot. <laughs> it sure does. And I, I think that everything that she accomplished in her life, everything uh, that she did is something that anyone would be proud uh, to say that they were able to accomplish. And not, not very many people can accomplish all the things that she did. Mm-hmm. But she, you add on top of that, the fact that she was African-American at, mm-hmm. at a time when it was just like like we just sh- uh, talked about, almost impossible to do. Um, it's as if she just kind of went on in there and just didn't know that she wasn't supposed to be able to do it. She just did it anyway. And, Absolutely. And, and it's amazing. And what an example she is for other people. Absolutely. And, you know, I think about back to the role models I've had in order to get into flight. And I think that, boy, I wish I would have known about Georgie. But, mm. you know, my role models were all, and I say this loving, they were all white men, <laughs> middle-aged white men to get in a flight. But, you know, I think that Georgie is held to a standard for any kind, any, any young women, any young women of color, any women of color um, to really just chase after it, get after it, you know, uh, just get after anything you want. Especially, you know, the flight service is very competitive. Um, mm-hmm. I worked, it's, I spent a good better part of a decade to get where I wanted to be. And every day I feel like is another addition for my job because I constantly have to train and I constantly have to do so much uh, to relearn my job every day. And every month it seems like it's a new, a, one new thing or every new thing. And to think back then when, you know, you, you consider how much has changed over the decades and how much she had to learn, relearn, learn, relearn, learn, relearn with new airframes and everything in a war zone, <laughs> in a war zone with people who don't want to work with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, like, I, I some days think that how do I do my job and how do I do my job as a woman in a male-dominated field, which EMS is still 
relatively, you know, it's a more happy place for women. But, you know, first response sometimes is a little, a little of a male, is a boys club sometimes. And I'm not going to sit here and say that, you know, it's not female friendly, but it's a bit of a boys club sometimes. But to think that, you know, she joined male aviators and male surgical techs and and, in a military, hot in a military field, which, you know, is renowned at that time to be me men, you know, that's significant, significant. Yes. And absolutely. She is um, a true just hero. She is an amazing person. Mm-hmm. And um, when I just reading the article about her, it seems like she's the kind of person that would probably not even accept any of those words, you know, of praise. She just seemed like the kind of person that's just sort of like, I just did what I did. You know, I just did what I, I need, had to do, wanted to do. And that's pretty much what she did, whatever she wanted to do. So, I mean, when I think about I one time... Uh, when I was in orientation, my preceptor and I helped to uh, helped uh, the paramedic and flight nurse carry uh, a take a, a patient out to the helicopter and put them up on the helicopter. And this patient was on a ventilator, a balloon pump, and had uh, IV uh, pumps. And it was just when I think about it now, I don't even think I understood at the time what an accomplishment it was. Now I'm just like, how in the heck did we do that? Yeah. Uh, but we had to pick that all four of there were there was the paramedic and the the nurse and then myself and my preceptor and the four of us it took all four of us to do this in a way cuz it it had all happened all at the same time there's just a very there's one way it's all going in and that's it. Yep. And <laughs> it was so stressful but we got it up in there somehow and it was all in one one you know nothing none of the tubing got disconnected and and it, it yeah, all and you know went in, in. in the middle of covid <laughs> that is such that is such a mood. I'm going to tell you because I've been transporting ECMOs and and balloon pumps and ventilators and pumps and humans. And, you know, it's been nerve wracking with COVID, but we're flying COVID patients right now. And, you know, you're reusing the stay whatever of, of the N95. And, you, you know, you're in enclosed space with no ventilation, with patients that are on BiPAPs and patients that you just are praying the circuits don't break free. Mm. Um, oh. Trying to play like helicopter Jenga. <laughs> And it has to be strapped down because if you hit turbulence, I really don't want to take an ECMO to the face. Yeah, rather not. No. And, you know, you get to scene calls where you're in the middle of nowhere and you have volunteer firemen who God love them. God love volunteer (laughs) firemen. You know, I come back and I've got like 50 friend requests sitting in before before I've even landed. But, you know, (laughs) you got to make sure that, you know, you got rotors still spinning and you're, you're loading patients. We call it a hot load. You're loading patients with like ventilators and all of these things. And you've got to make sure that these poor men and women don't walk into your tail rotor. <laughs> oh, so it's oh, like, okay, now, no, no, go this way. Just, no, no, not that way. Go this way. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I can remember just being I was horrified when I walked out uh, there in that uh, helicopter. And the, it's just, I was just like, this is so intimidating. And I, uh, we stood there and watched them leave. And I just watched them like fly off. And I was like, those two people are the most, they're like the bravest people in the world. I looked up to them so much. I cannot describe to you. But you know, it's the coolest job in the world. I mean, like 
It's but so, the bravery, the courage, I'm telling you, no, I you know could what? never, no, no, because, ever do it. it I could it, never do it. Uh, there's some days where I'm just like, oh, no. But, you know, at the same time, though, I'm, I love my job every day. Like, I get to see the world from, you know, the, the, the way that birds get to see it. Like, there's <laughs> some people that are just like, no, too much turbulence, can't do that. And then I get, I get motion sick. And then... You know, you hit, you get a day where you get hit too much turbulence and you hit, like, maybe, there's some aircraft that fall, like, 200 feet out of this, you know, fall 200 feet because something goes funky and you're like, oh, that happened today. Or oh you hit goodness. a bird. I'm like, we hit a bird. We hit two birds once. So, like, two big buzzards right in the middle of the night. And it's like, why are you, why are you up? Go to bed. It's, it's past your bedtime. And you're just like, Bump. and it's like, what is that even? But, you know, at the same time, it's like, I also get to take, I get to see the coolest sunsets. I get to see the other side of the clouds when y'all are getting rained on. I'm up here getting a suntan. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and, you know, you get to do the, the helmet, pull the helmet off, flip your hair off like Barbie, and the firemen go, mm-hmm. woo! And it's, <laughs> I, no, I mean, like, but, you know, at the same time, like, it's a real honor to be able to do what you do because you walk in where everybody's panicking and they kind of look to you and you're like, whew. And it's like, oh, okay, why are y'all, why are y'all, like, going, whoo, <laughs> like, like, I know what I'm doing. No, You're like, don't look at me. <laughs> it's, it's a sense of, like, it's, 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 it's real humbling, though, to, to be that person. And I remember being that person because, you know, I serve the same hospitals that I've worked in. And I serve the same ER that I worked in. I remember how it felt when when the flight crew walked in and I had a hot mess express going on and I'm like, oh man, they're here. Look how cool they look and they're so smart. And boy, I'm standing yeah. here like stuttering. Well, <laughs> there's one thing that you have to know and everybody has to know and that's that you can't be a flight nurse if you're not top notch. You've got to be extra. You didn't just barely get by nursing school by the skin of your teeth and everybody has to know that. And so yeah. uh, when you see those people coming, you know that... They know what they're doing. You don't. You, you don't have to wonder. Like, wait, is this a, yeah. the kind of? Because so, not everybody knows what they're doing all lot. the time. You know what I mean? I mean, there's <laughs> things that scare me too. But the thing too is, there's things I don't know, and there's things that scare me. But the thing about being where we are is, we also know our resources. So, mm. you know, I have to know a lot about a lot, and I train very hard, and I have to know, you know. But I also know who my resources are, and if I don't know it, I know my partner might, and if I know he don't, I know I can call back to my to my attending, or I know I can, it's never a single ball sport. Um, So we may not know everything, but we know enough. And the thing about it is too, is we know enough to stay calm. And part of of it is staying calm and just knowing that it's not my emergency. I think that's where we lose our heads is where we start internalizing other people's emergencies. Mm. And that's a skill. That really is a skill is, is, is being the calm in the chaos and kind of being that, okay, we got this, you know, it's, we're going to, we're going to handle it. And even if we can't save this one, we're going to make, we're going to try, we're going to try to figure it out. We're going to do the best we can. It's not my emergency. I'm just here to do the best I can. I'm here to do the best for the patient. I'm going to hear, and if I can't save that patient, I'm going to do everything I can to make their family feel like we did. Those words right there can apply to nursing all across the board because uh, we are all at at different times, no matter Mm -hmm. where, we work, no matter what kind of nursing we do, at any time, you could be in a situation where there is something happening that is an emergency. But if you can step back and be the calm and the chaos, then people, I've had people tell me before that I, for, for whatever reason, in very chaotic situations and emergent situations mm-hmm. that are where it's just completely like everything has just blown up. Um, 
they had no idea that I was like nervous mm-hmm. or that I was like scared or anything like that because I'm very straight faced. Very, I'm mm-hmm. I, the the more serious the situation or like the more nervous I am or the more maybe I don't know about if panic is the right word, but just the the, the more uncomfortable. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. The the more I get very serious, I get quiet, and I get very focused. Yeah. And, and and so I don't even know. It's like I block everything else out, and I'm just doing what I'm doing. And then when I'm finished, and and you look because there's times when there could be like 15 people in a room, and there's you know this patient is crashing, and everybody's doing all sorts of things, and you're intubating the patient, and you're doing all sorts of things. Then it's all over, mm-hmm. and sometimes I'll look up and be like, "Oh my gosh." What just happened? I oh, yeah. like I'm a wreck, and I th- I feel like gosh, did every did I did anybody see me? Like was I? I, I you just don't yeah, even know. No, I I I relate to that 100. percent I mean, I've had some real real doozies where it's it's uh you know I I wondered like did anyone see me? Did anyone see me kind of like looking a little sideways on that one? But right. then you know you you come back and I mean I had a real a real bad pediatric call where it was my first mm-hmm. where I've not had a doctor there to ask for permission or had a a, a parent where I wasn't an EMT with a paramedic. I was the I was the highest level provider on the scene and it went bad. It was a bad call. We were never going to save this kid, um, mm-hmm. and it was devastating enough. We had a debriefing that week. And I remember being very uncomfortable about this call. And I remember taking this kid into the trauma bay and giving this, the calmest report I've ever given. And I remember the, the team, you know, the next day at the debriefing saying that you sounded calm, you sounded collected, you knew what you were talking about, you helped. And we did everything, we did everything that we could have done. Um, while the mother was there, like she had, she was, she filmed the whole thing because she was in shock. She was filming when this accident happened. She never stopped. So like she was there mm-hmm. watching and never turned her video off because she was in shock. She just couldn't, she didn't, forgot to turn the video off. She was just, wow. yeah. I, I'm not going to get into details, but anyway, so the debriefing the next day, the EMS providers that were there when we landed just remember saying, I remember seeing you and remember feeling calm. And I remember being, thank God, because they remembered me from a, a really bad call two days prior. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the one guy was like, I saw you. And I felt, said, thank God, because mm-hmm. he remembered my face. He remembered how I handled that call. And in my head, I'm going, Oh, well, I'm really glad he didn't see me kind of looking sideways because I was just like, Whoa. but you know, at yeah. the same time, and, and sometimes it's like not everyone's good, going to be good at this job. Not everyone's for this job. You can train yourself to, and to learn to be calm and you can train yourself to learn to be a leader, but not everyone's going to be cut for this job. I, you know, I, I questioned myself for a long time whether I was going to be cut out for this job. But the thing is, too, is that it's, a, it's like nursing anywhere. That first year is that, that, that year where you're going to question yourself over and over and over again. And now I'm starting to get to that point where I'm like, I got this. I can handle this. But I'm, I also know that I'm fallible as a human. I don't know everything. I don't know what I don't know. But I know who am I can ask. I know what my resources are. But I also know that I need to parlay calm. And I need to think it through. And if I start getting all willy-nilly panicked... It doesn't do anybody any good. Everybody else is going to panic. Everyone looks to me to be the calm. So, you know, there's going to be people that you're going to look to and there's, and you know, find those people. You know, when you're a new nurse, you you find those people and Mm -hmm. they'll, they'll teach you. Yes, definitely. Until, until you're able to do it yourself, definitely um, 
find those people and then you can emulate them. You can learn from them and hopefully become that way yourself because that's, um, those are the type of people that that just uh, are able to just jump in and do things that they don't even know they can do, you know, because you you just got to focus and sometimes things just come out. It's it's almost muscle memory. You know, you just, you just do what you, your, somehow your brain knows to do in those situations. Absolutely. When in question, ask what Georgie would do. Oh, gosh. Wow. I love this story. I love this good nurse. Georgie uh, was an amazing nurse. I don't even think good nurse is an appropriate. It's like she was just absolutely amazing. What a trailblazer. I loved this story. I felt so good about this story. Like I just had such a fun time. Georgie Bristol, that was her name. And uh, we we were very thankful for her coming before us and setting such a wonderful example. Mm-hmm. Well, Steph, I appreciate you coming on the podcast so much. You just have no idea. This has been so much fun, so entertaining and educational. And I think that the, our listeners are just going to love this. I'm excited to get it um, over to editing so we can get it out in a few weeks. And I feel like I've started off 2021 with a, a bang now. And um <laughs> So I appreciate you. Thank you so much. I appreciate what you do. And I know that you probably look at it like, you know, it's something you enjoy doing. And, and but if we didn't have people willing to do uh, what you're willing to do, it would not, we'd, we would not have those statistics that you were talking about other, uh, earlier. So thank you. Thank you so much. Yep. Nope. I really, really love my job. I'm thankful to have my job. And this year has been, or well, I guess I say last year, 2020 has been a real challenge to my, to my resolve. It's been really, but you know, I'm going forward with a lot of uh, a lot of positivity and thinking about you know if I what people who didn't do my job and such you know there would be a lot of lives that couldn't have couldn't have made it this year. It's so true. It's so true. Well, you guys, uh, you can't. Oh, where can they find your blog? By the way, oh, um, so I, I'm at Scrubs and Sirens. It's Scrubs N as in the letter N Sirens dot com. Perfect. You guys go look her up and you know, you can find me at goodnursebadnurse.com and you can send me emails and uh, those go to Tina at goodnursebadnurse.com. We're on Instagram at GNBN podcast and uh, uh, Facebook at goodnursebadnurse. Gosh, I feel like I say that wrong every single time. We are on, we're at Good Nurse Bad Nurse on Instagram and GNBN Podcast on Facebook and Twitter. And why I can't say it like that, I don't know. I always have to say it the wrong way and then correct myself every single week. <laughs> I don't know. It just will not come out the right, the right way the first time. Uh, but I also want to remind you guys that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse. Mm-hmm.